to turn to that section of the, the Bible. Genesis 2, verses 19 to 25, and then we'll turn in the New Testament. Heather is going to read this today for us. Uh, and then we'll turn in the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But we'll start at Genesis 2, 19. It's starting with Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the field and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 6, I know on one Bible it's page 809, but I don't know about the other Bible. Anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Starting at verse 9. Do you not know that the kingdom, sorry, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from, his, from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? 
You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much for um, this uh, revealing uh, passage of Scripture uh, where your uh, will for uh, sex and relationships and holiness is uh, clearly revealed for us. Uh, Father God, we do pray that uh, as we look at the passage that uh, you would change our thinking, change our attitudes and uh, change our behaviour as well. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, do not be deceived, neither the uh, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, uh, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, they say that uh, to start your sermon by just reading a passage of scripture is usually not the best way to hook uh, the congregation's attention, but I think this passage is a little bit different, isn't it? Uh, this uh, indeed is a passage which has been in the news, uh, the Instagram posting of Israel Folau, which has uh, gained worldwide attention and which is the subject of a Rugby Australia hearing that uh, I guess would be happening uh, now as well as yesterday. Um, there are a number of important issues that are aroused by that posting. Um, religious freedom, uh, contractual obligations, uh, the effect of words on people and so on. Uh, but we're not going to be dealing with that today. I mention it because it's the elephant in the room um, that we're all aware of, we're all thinking about. Uh, what I'd like us to do rather is to, stay, to take a step back uh, from the controversy uh, because as we do so we we know that this controversy is really part of a bigger picture uh, it's a um, uh, whilst the presenting attitude is society's attitude towards homosexuality uh, there is the larger context of our society's attitudes towards um, sex uh, sexuality um, uh, gender and relationships in general. Uh, that is the wider, uh, broader context. And so I want to talk about that for a few moments because the era of history in which we live uh, is an era which has seen monumental change uh, in regard to what society deems to be um, accepted and appropriate uh, sexual conduct. I understand that, uh, say, 60 years ago, before I was born, uh, that um, sex before marriage was generally not approved. Is that right, the older members of the congregation? Generally not approved. Um, the wedding night was um, supposed to be the start of the sexual relationship uh, between a man and a woman. Adultery was legal grounds to file for divorce. Uh, sex was only to be a physical union between a man and a woman who were married. Now, of course, because of sin, uh, what society 
approved of and deemed appropriate uh, and what went on behind closed doors were sometimes you know, two different things uh, and that is because of sin. Uh, there is sin, there is hypocrisy in every era. Uh, but even so, uh, the societal norms, uh, societal standards were uh, as I've just articulated but there was change that had been uh, developing, change that had been, had been brewing under the surface in Western society uh, for a, a long period of time, since the 19th century and certainly into the early part of the 20th century. And yet it was the circumstances of the 1960s which caused what became known as the um, Cultural Revolution, uh, the unprecedented number of adolescents um, as post-war babies became teenagers, the um, baby boom generation born uh, into an era where there were so many, uh, became so many teenagers and an era of prosperity in the, rest, in the Western world, uh, combined with things like the development of the pill, which um, uh, amongst other things was touted as the, uh, the ability or the opportunity uh, to have sex without consequences, uh, as if pregnancy is the only consequence of sex. And other social factors, um, the rise of certain elements of um, uh, feminism and other cultural uh, issues and technological uh, factors that were at work, which combined uh, produced this um, generation, uh, which was the um, the era of the sexual revolution, the sexual revolution which uh, promised freedom, uh, freedom from uh, the shackles of the sexual constraints uh, that their parents um, had as very much as a part of their culture. Uh, the promise of freedom, uh, which has delivered us with the society that we have, where we now struggle uh, with the consequences of that in so many ways. Uh, especially young people who have been born into a society where they don't have any basis for comparison. They don't uh, know anything different uh, than uh, the sexual complexities uh, which our society now wrestles with. And so therefore, it is more important than ever that we seek to understand what the Bible says about sex and the difference uh, that Christ makes in terms of how we uh, understand sex and relationships. Now, we could spend a month of Sundays uh, on just this one passage of Scripture. In fact, uh, I think we did last time we worked through 1 Corinthians, so it was about 8 or 10 years ago, I think it was, um, went into more depth in this, on this passage. Uh, those sermons are available on the internet, on the church website. You can have a listen to those. Uh, but today, I want us to um, take a look at the, uh, this whole section or this whole passage as one chunk uh, because as we do so, it provides us with a helpful window 
uh, into the Bible's teaching on this important subject. So if you could open up your Bibles at 1 Corinthians 6, uh, that would be helpful. Um, some context here uh, is necessary. Uh, we see in 1 Corinthians 6 that there seems to be a rather too relaxed attitude towards um, immorality and <clears throat> particularly immorality in the church itself. Uh, in fact, uh, in verse 16, uh, there's uh, evidence there that uh, one, of, one or more of the congregation members might actually be involved in paying for sex, um, which is not entirely surprising in the Corinthian uh, context. Uh, very, um, remember it was a seaport and it uh, had a big trade in the oldest profession. Uh, there were also temples of pagan religions where, um, which involved temple prostitution and sex uh, with the prostitutes from the temple. So it's not entirely surprising that this would come up as an issue. Uh, the surprising thing may be how Paul goes about addressing it. And I want to... Um, uh, make two points uh, from the passage or draw, draw two points out uh, in particular which I think makes sense of the passage. And the first is that Paul addresses the issue by helping us to have a right understanding of the human body. Now, have a look down at verse 12 uh, where he says, Everything is permissible for me but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. Now, you read that and you think, you scratch your head and you think, oh, what's, he, what's he on about? <laughs> what's, what's he saying here? Uh, it seems that there were, um, and this is the nature of, <coughs> of a letter where we've only got one side of the letter that... Uh, there's something going on there in the Corinthian church and it may be that there were some, um, some slogans going around, some um, catchphrases, uh, which, uh, where the Corinthians were saying that everything is permissible for me. Now, where do you think they might have got that from? How about the Apostle Paul himself? Uh, <clears throat> Paul taught that in Christ that we are now not required to obey um, certain aspects of the Old Testament law. Uh, and what he means by that is the food laws, because God has declared all foods to be clean. Uh, when we get to chapters 8, 9 and 10, uh, we're going to be looking more at um, that particular issue, particularly in relation to food offered up to idols. Um, but... In chapters 8 to 10, uh, Paul argues that even though we have the freedom to eat um, uh, all foods, that uh, sometimes it's actually more beneficial uh, to other Christians if we choose not to eat those foods, to, uh, uh, to refrain from eating um, certain foods, to give up our freedoms. But it seems that the Christians are applying this freedom, uh, not just to food laws, but freedom uh, to the moral law, freedom 
in particular to sex. And are using this phrase as a justification to sin. So that's one issue. What about the other slogan? Uh, where he says, food for the stomach and stomach for food. Uh, there may be a bit of Greek philosophy in this. Uh, some of the Greek philosophers, um, the, particularly those referred to as the Epicureans, uh, the Epicureans taught that, um, that this life is all that there is, and so uh, therefore what we need to be doing in life is to be maximising our pleasure. And uh, initially this was a, a noble thing because uh, the kinds of pleasures that they had in mind were the pleasures that were derived from, um, from doing good deeds. Uh, but um, uh, given the sinfulness of human nature that uh, evolved or devolved uh, into um, <coughs> other pleasures, eating well um, and indulging in sex. But also, the Greeks didn't value the human body as much as they valued the human soul. Uh, they considered the soul to be immortal, but not the body. And we see uh, some of this evidence in verse 13, where these Christians are saying, Paul says, that the Christians are saying that food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food and God is going to destroy them both. And therefore, what you do with your body doesn't matter because it will be destroyed by God. Well, it does matter. Um, see how Paul changes their slogan. He does a bit of sloganing himself in verse 13b where he says, well, actually, the body is not meant for sexual immorality but is for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, there is a common misunderstanding amongst Christians that uh, when we are in heaven, that uh, we will all be floating around in, in spirit form. Uh, when Jesus was resurrected, uh, in what form was he resurrected? As a bodily form. There's real flesh, real bones, real bodily organs and skin. And he was resurrected in... When Jesus ascended to heaven, in what form did he ascend to heaven? It was bodily form. He ascended, he's resurrected and he's ascended in, in body. And this is something which Paul has to deal with more at length um, with the Corinthian church when we get to chapter 15 because there were those in the Corinthian church who were, uh, weren't believing in the physical resurrection of all believers and uh, Paul uh, shows how that is not true and we'll get to that a bit later on in uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, when Jesus returns uh, we will be raised in bodily form, in bodily form. Uh, and here uh, Paul simply states in verse 14 that God raised Jesus from the dead and so too will he raise us. That is, the Christians in Corinth are wrong on two counts. 
Firstly, our bodies are not for immorality. Our bodies are for the Lord. And secondly, our bodies are not for destruction. Our bodies are for resurrection. I mean, we might look at the mirror. Look in the mirror and you think to yourself, I could be in better shape. Or I've seen better days. I'm not what I used to be. But our bodies are of eternal worth to God. Resurrected, our bodies will be perfect, but our bodies now are of great value in God's sight in order to serve him. And this is a Christian view of of the body. It is profoundly different uh, from using our bodies in order to indulge in sin. Our bodies are to be used in order to serve the Lord. It means that our bodies actually have um, great dignity and, um, and that we as persons, therefore, have great worth. Now, that's the first big point that Paul's making. The second big point that Paul makes is that as Christians, we are now united with Christ. Uh, have a look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, the key uh, phrase in that section there is the two will become one flesh. Uh, This is actually a profound statement which takes us back to the very purpose for which God created um, sex And uh, so I want us to spend a few moments looking at that. I wonder if you could just uh, keep 1 Corinthians 6, um, put your bulletin or something in there so we come back to that later. Um, But come with me back to that uh, passage in Genesis chapter 2 that uh, was read for us earlier on by Heather. In Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to pick it up at uh, verse 20, the second part of verse 20 where it begins with the word but... Let's just read that and just talk about it for a moment or two. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she is taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Uh, Again, we could spend a month of Sundays on just that passage, but um, just spend a few moments on it. Because what it tells us, is that the one flesh union is a union, a sexual union between a man and his wife. 
Um, they are the same in the sense that they are the same species, if you like. But they are different. They are physiologically different. Let's state one is man, the other one is woman. <laughs> they are different. Uh, and it is this uh, complementary difference which is, the, is fundamental uh, to them becoming one flesh, uh, which at the very least refers to the sexual relationship. Sex is a good gift. Uh, it is a good gift given to the man and the woman uh, to unite them. It deepens, profoundly deepens their, um, their relationship with one another. Uh, as it is in that union that they experience um, a very deep trust uh, for one another. They become as one. Uh, it is a good gift because uh, it is the very means uh, by which children are conceived and are then born into that, um, that, uh, that relationship um, which, which is a family the complementary relationship between a man and his wife, bearing children and forming um, a family of their own, uh, which enables them to um, do that which uh, God had commanded earlier in Genesis 1, which is to be fruitful, to multiply and to fill the earth. Sex expressed rightly is God's good gift um, for our benefit and for the flourishing of human society. Now, with that in mind, I think this is an apt time uh, for us to go back to 1 Corinthians 6 and to consider the uh, sexual sins which we uh, glossed over last week uh, from in verse 9 uh, when, as last week, we were focusing on the issue of um, one Christian taking another Christian to court, uh, greed and, <clears throat> and so on, and we glossed over the sexual sins because we wanted to deal with that uh, in the uh, talk today. So, in chapter 6, verse 9, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, uh, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, along with the others that we spoke of last week, uh, neither will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is... Um, Paul is talking to a, a church here, to, to Christians. This is not a, an evangelistic, you know, message. Uh, necessarily. Uh, Paul is speaking to Christians. Christians who used to be like this. Um, but so, And so there were Christians in the church uh, who used to be male prostitutes. But the, the word there is, it's a more difficult word to translate. It means, um, uh, it, is more, it means the soft one and it's uh, it's, it more likely refers to the younger, more passive partner uh, in a homosexual relationship 
whereas homosexual offenders uh, refers to an older, um, more active partner, and something which, which was a dreadful thing that was going on in Greek culture at that time. But the Bible speaks uh, clearly about um, homosexuality, homosexual practice, as being contrary to uh, God's intent for sex. Paul is speaking to Christians who uh, used to be like this, uh, but in Christ they are washed. In Christ they are sanctified, they are made to be holy, to be different. And in Christ uh, they have been made right in God's sight. And so these Christians in Corinth are therefore not to continue to live in this way. That is who they were. It is not who they now are. Therefore, the person who shamelessly and unrepentantly, uh, for example, commits adultery, um, does not actually have Jesus as Lord uh, and is not saved. No matter what they claim about being Christian. If someone is claiming to be a Christian and is high-handedly, unrepentantly involved in a continual adulterous relationship, then Jesus is not Lord. And Jesus is only our Saviour as he is also our Lord. Faith and repentance always go hand in hand. So too is the case for someone who is actively engaging in homosexual sex. Uh, it is contrary to God's stated purpose for sex and is therefore sin, which must be repented of. Paul's warning is a, a true warning that there is no... Uh, that uh, people who are unrepentant will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, temptation is not the same thing as sin. Uh, as, as fallen human beings, uh, we are all tempted in lots of ways and we are tempted differently and we are tempted for different reasons. The reasons that some people experience uh, same-sex attraction are, in my reading, uh, not as clear as what uh, some people would suggest in the whole nature versus nurture discussion. Um, particularly uh, those who are claiming that the science says absolutely that it is nature. Um, a critical look at the uh, studies and the science on that would suggest that that is far from um, conclusive. But we were all born that way in the sense that we were all born uh, into sin. We all have a propensity to sin. That is who we are post the fall of Adam and Eve. I had the privilege uh, last year of spending a little bit of time with a dear and respected uh, Christian brother 
who experiences same-sex temptation. Um, he is a person who recognises uh, that uh, this is what he uh, feels, this is what he experiences, it is true of him. He also recognises that to act that out would be to transition from temptation to sin. And so therefore uh, he is celibate and he has structured his life and structured his relationships uh, in order to um, protect himself uh, from uh, that temptation uh, moving in a direction uh, which would result in homosexual sin. And so he is celibate. And uh, he has a very fruitful um, gospel ministry, uh, a ministry that is uh, very well respected. And uh, indeed, he uh, speaks against um, homosexual practice. He um, preaches against same-sex marriage. And he is reviled. He is despised um, for doing so. Uh, by those who take a different view of um, Scripture. Now, I mention this is because uh, if you experience that temptation, uh, you do need to know that there are ways that it can be worked through so that you don't fall into sin and become enslaved. I'm not suggesting that that's in any way easy. But under God, uh, it is the right thing. Because as we, as we live with Jesus as our Lord in this area, then we can indeed uh, use our bodies in order to glorify God as we serve him and we serve other people. My great concern for our society is that homosexual sin is now seen as being a matter of, of absolute freedom. Whereas true freedom uh, is found in being united with Jesus through the gospel. Now, uh, in regards to that, in verses 15 to 17, Paul likens the one flesh union of marriage uh, to our um, relationship with Christ. We are profoundly united with Christ because his death is our death for sin. His resurrection is our resurrection to eternal life bodily. In verse 19, in verse 19, God by his spirit dwells in us that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so profoundly are we united with Jesus. And so if we are spiritually united with Jesus in the sense that our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit because of his death and his resurrection in which we are also united with him, if that is the nature of our union with Christ, then it is absolutely in incomprehensible that we would be in a one flesh union with anyone outside 
of God's purposes for sex, which of course is husband and wife. And in the case in Corinth, a prostitute, uh, people were being actually in, uh, employing prostitutes, which is just appalling. What it means is that if you are in any relationship, any sexual relationship which is outside of God's um, purpose for sex, then you need to get out of it. Um, you, you need to repent. The sexual revolution um, promised freedom, but it has delivered confusion and sorrow in relationships. And you and I see that all around. Uh, we see that every day. And it shouldn't be of any great surprise to us as Christians that this would be the case. Uh, I mean, did you notice in verse 18 that when we sin sexually, we <clears throat> sin against our, our body? There's an interesting thought there because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are united with Christ in that way. And so therefore to sin sexually, we're sinning against uh, ourselves as a temple of, um, of God, uh, we're sinning that way, but it also means that we do great damage. There are other sins which damage our bodies, but there is something which is unique about sexual sin, uh, for the reasons that we've seen, uh, the eternal worth of our bodies which gives us great dignity um, the one flesh relationship of marriage with the trust that that involves and the security that it brings. So that when we mess around with sexual immorality, it has very deep consequences. It has profound consequences in which we all see and experience them. We see around us. And so Paul says... Flee from it. Don't even, don't, even, don't even start going down that path that leads to that destination. Do a U-turn. Head back the other direction because the stakes are simply too high. Our society's changing attitudes towards sexuality. They're often described as being progressive, aren't they? We're a progressive country we're we're moving forward we're um we're improving we're evolving we're getting to a higher stage however an honest look at how things are going um, the divorce rates the uh, numbers of families with children you know who uh, who have a different mother or a different father um, the pain and the sorrow of uh, people who are breaking up after um, uh, having sex without commitment. When we have a look at how it's going and we take a longer view of history, then we can see that the opposite is the case. We're not progressing, we're actually regressing. We're regressing. We're returning to a pre-Christian attitude towards sex, uh, like in Corinth. Our society exalts uh, sexual freedom and individual choice, but who is truly free? 
Is it the person who has multiple sexual relationships before settling down and bringing all of those experiences into their settling down relationship? Uh, is it the person who moves from one relationship to another relationship and leaves a trail of broken mess behind? Um, is it the married person who feels that it's actually okay to have a, a fling or two in your married life? It's healthy for your relationship? The lie they tell us? Is that freedom? Or is that being mastered? Is that being controlled? The outcomes speak for themselves. You and I are to be different because sin is no longer our master. Because in verse 20, as Paul concludes, and the point on which I will conclude as well, uh, we've been purchased. Now, like um, slaves in a first century marketplace, that we belong to one master and someone else has come along and they've, they've paid the price. They've purchased us. The price being uh, God's own son dying on a cross for us. It's a very heavy price to pay. But he did it for you and me. We need to grasp this because it means that we, we now serve a different master. That we now are people who live uh, not for ourselves, not for our own indulgence, not for the pleasures of... We are now people who worship, serve and glorify God in our bodies. So let's pray about that then, shall we? <clears throat> Father, uh, we grieve our um, society, we grieve the sin that um, uh, is so pervasive uh, in so many relationships uh, because uh, people have turned away from you. Uh, we grieve the effect that sin has had on our own lives in, in these ways. And Father, we are just so grateful that we have been washed, that we have been sanctified, that we have been justified, uh, that we've been purchased uh, by the blood of your own Son. We pray, Father God, that we would have a right view of, of our bodies, uh, seeing the, uh, the profound nature of what it means to be made in your image and to be so valued by you that we, our bodies would be resurrected. And Father, we pray uh, that we would be people who, uh, who flee from immorality. Uh, help us, Lord God, to recognise temptation and to flee from it, that we would instead be people who give our bodies over to serving you, to obeying you, uh, to loving you. In Jesus' name, Amen.